All right, good evening. How are we doing? Good to see you guys. Sounded good from where I was, so glad you guys chose to come out tonight. Um, I, I'll just admit I'm not typically a big fan of Christmas music. I can handle it maybe on Christmas Day, but there's something about maybe the off-season that makes it just seem right. So that was great. Thanks for doing that tonight. Hopefully it'll all make sense here in a minute. We've been in a multi-month series tracking through the story, the highlights of Scripture. And some of you are reading through that Bible, and if you don't have one of those, I think we still have some available in the cafe area. I think you can get one for five bucks. But we're in chapter 22 of that, and its title is The Birth of a King. So we're talking about the birth of Jesus tonight, and we'll dive into those scriptures here in just a second. But um, a guy by the name of George MacDonald wrote a short story called The Princess and the Goblin, in which he writes about an eight-year-old princess who lives in a castle on the side of a really large mountain. And inside the mountain are goblins who hate the king, who is her father, and they have hatched this plot to kidnap her and to try to kill her. And so her aging grandmother understands that she's in serious trouble, and she's given her this ring, which is attached to a thread, with these instructions, that if you were to follow the thread, it will serve as a guide for you. And it might seem that it's leading you in crazy directions at times, but trust the thread and it will lead you to safety. And so she starts to climb this mountain and she enters into this dark hole where she crawls and she crawls and she crawls, seeming like she's never going to get out of this dark hole. And then the thread leads her into a pile of stones as she feels like she's about to emerge from this hole and she finds herself in complete despair. But because the thread leads her there, she begins to take one stone off of the pile and another until she is uncovered at the bottom is her best friend. And so they have this reunion and together they start to navigate their way out of this mountain. And he is instructing her, it seems like you're leading us in places by which we're never going to escape this place. And she has this great line where she whispers to him these words. She says, I know that, but this is the way the thread goes and we must follow it. And so it's a really cool story by which she finds safety and she finds rescue and she's ultimately led back to better places because of the thread. And so as you read this story, and you can download a short PDF of it online and you can read it for yourself, but it just kind of shows that through good things and through bad things and through times when things seem really apparent and at times when things just don't seem very clear at all, there's this thread that holds it all together for her. It's this thread that's going to lead her to safety. It's this thread that's eventually going to save her. And when we're reading the scriptures and we're working through this book, this story, consistently woven throughout the fabric of that story, you will find that there is this promise that a Messiah is coming and he's going to save people. And it starts at the beginning of the scriptures and it goes all the way through to the very end. See, God's done everything he possibly can, right? To have a relationship with people. He has provided for them, he's blessed them. When they've made a mess of things, he's come in and cleaned it up and he's rescued people. There are times when they made mistakes and God came in and saved the day and then he sends people to help them and he gives warning messages, right? Don't go down that road or he sends positive messages, please go this direction. And in the end, when we left off last week, ultimately the people still hadn't fully listened to God. And so when you come to where we are today at the end of Malachi of the Old Testament and you turn the page and you go to the beginning of the New Testament and the book of Matthew, there's this stretch of silence on God's part. 
No messages from God, no messengers from God, no word, no appearances, nothing like that for 400 years. So if you're looking through your Bible and you leave the Old Testament and you go to the New Testament and there's this white piece of paper there, that covers a span of about four centuries where God seemingly has gone completely silent. And actually, by not speaking, God's really kind of setting the stage to get people's attention. And he's building this anticipation because he's choosing just the right time to send his son into the story. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. A little bit of Christmas in March, and I would love for you to follow along with that this evening. We'll spend some time on that moment that happened 2,000 years ago, which is really the hinge of history. And so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Our ushers will bring one down and hand it to you, and we'll look at this passage in the book of Matthew. I think it's, I think it's right. Chapter 22, if you're reading in the Story Bible, page 733, I think, if you're looking in uh, the House Bible. But we just want to look at this idea where God decides to announce the birth of his son, Jesus. And we're going to look at Matthew's biography. So four different writers write about the life of Jesus. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the first four books in the New Testament. And they all choose to introduce Jesus in different ways. And so I want to talk about it just for a minute before we dive in more fully into Matthew's version. But it got me thinking about how when different couples or, you know, ladies give birth, they sometimes have different ways of announcing that. And I've seen a lot of interesting things on Facebook lately about, hey, either we're pregnant or here's the arrival of our child. And so I dug around a little bit and I found a few just to get you thinking about this, that people introduce things differently. Here's one. Hey, we're prego, all right? And so there's these announcements you can make to say, hey, we're having a baby. What's the second one? I like this one. We're expanding our home by two feet. Isn't that cute? Just makes you go, you know that a woman made that one? And uh, there are a few that guys made. I didn't think I could share them with you because they're not quite appropriate. But what's the next one? All right, anybody get this one? <laughs> all right, we've got a bun in the oven. There you go. You can do that at your next family get-together. And I really like this one here because I think it's probably more um, fitting with the way we find out in our story tonight that Joseph probably received the news, right? It's going to have major shock value when Mary tells Joseph that she's pregnant. But in similar fashion, the biographers of Jesus' life, they introduce Jesus' birth in very different ways. And here's the way Matthew does this. Matthew writes for a Jewish audience, and so he writes to people who are interested in the prophecies about Jesus. They want to know about his ancestry and what kind of family does he come from. And so Matthew focuses on genealogy. Here's the way Matthew writes. He says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David, and of Abraham. And so he goes through, person by person, through the family tree of Jesus. That's Matthew. Well, Mark, he skips over the birth of Jesus entirely, and he goes straight to the adult life of Jesus, and he spends a lot of time focusing on the actions of Jesus. And then there's, there's Luke. Luke writes to a Greek audience, and so Luke is a doctor. He's very factual. He writes a lot of um, details and concentrates on on that, and here's the way he introduces Jesus. He says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you. And so Luke will later give us the classic Christmas pageant angle in chapter two. And if you are familiar with that, you know there's a lot of details. There's who, there's what, there's when, there's where. That's Luke. So we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. 
And John goes a totally different route than the other people. He has kind of a poetic introduction, and he looks at it from about a 10,000-foot perspective, and he writes this way. He says, in the beginning, the Word already existed, and that's his name for Jesus, the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. And so the Word became human and made his home among us. And so what John wants us to know is that Jesus' story didn't just start in Bethlehem, but John says Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Jesus goes back to creation, and he is the fulfillment of God's very word. So those are the different ways that people introduce Jesus. And I thought, well, let's just drill down on one of them. And so I just want to read a little bit from the book of Matthew tonight. And maybe this will sound a little bit familiar to some of you. And I'll just make a few observations about it. And what does Jesus' birth really tell us. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1 and start in verse 18. Here's the way Matthew writes this. He says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Here's the first thing I want you to observe from this story tonight is this, that God uses people. When Donnie and I or Rob and we all sit together, guys who teach here, when we say, you know, here's kind of the point I want to make about the story this week, we usually come back to this same thing. It sounds repetitive, but it's true. God uses people. And oftentimes he chooses to use very unlikely characters to accomplish his will. You have Mary and you have Joseph, and they're engaged. Essentially, they've been promised to one another. Some families got together and made an arrangement, and you have Mary and you have Joseph, and they've kind of agreed to it, and so they're in this long engagement period leading up to the point where they will eventually be married, and Mary becomes pregnant. Now, I don't know how those conversations happened between Mary and Joseph, but at some point she had to come forward and try to explain herself to him. And Joseph, he's over here on this side, and he has some interesting options. He has legal options. He could technically, is what called, divorce her. He could send her away. He could just make it all disappear, but he chooses to proceed very carefully and just kind of play it out. But Joseph, he's just a regular guy. He's a manual laborer. He's a carpenter. Mary, a lot of people think, is most likely a young teenager, Many people estimate that she might be as young as 14 years old when this takes place. So you think about this. You got a 14-year-old and you're in the room tonight. Anybody got a freshman in high school? My youngest daughter is about to turn 16. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take her to get her official driver's license. Now, this will be my third kid that is going to get their license. I've driven all over Wake County with with these kids. And I can tell you, and maybe as another parent, you understand this, I think a little bit more should be required of kids in order to get a license. Huh, anybody? I mean, it's it's scary at times, and we're going to let this kid drive around the county. Think about Mary then. If she really is about 14, or let's just say she's a teenager, carrying around the Son of God, right? The Messiah, the King of Kings, the Savior of the world. I mean, she could have been one of any thousands of girls, and yet God chose to use her. He could have done it any way that he wanted to do it, but God chooses to use people to do his will. 
I mean, out of all the girls in the world, he chooses this one. It's as if they're up here in heaven and someone's discussing it, and then they say, Mary, here's the deal. We've all discussed it up here, and we choose you for this assignment. Because God uses people. That's what he does. And sometimes I think God uses people, much like Mary, to do some extra special things with their lives. I mean, I think about the Old Testament people like Noah. God came to Noah and he says, Noah, I choose you. I want you to build an ark. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks you're doing or what what they think you're up to. You build an ark and you're going to save your family. Abraham, I choose you. I choose you to be a father who's going to bring about many, many nations. Moses, I choose you. All right, lead a revolution. Take these people out of slavery into freedom. Joshua, I'm going to choose you. Take these people into a brand new land. Or David, David, I'm going to choose you. And I want you to go over there and battle Goliath. And you're going to cut his head off. And you become the king. And God chooses people like Esther, right, to rise up to power and serve in a position to save a nation. And even in our lifetime, I think God has used some very special people Maybe someone like Billy Graham to lead millions of people to follow Jesus, or Mother Teresa to care for poor and needy people around the world, or probably some people sitting in this room tonight that God has called to a very special purpose, because God uses people to do some really extra special things sometimes. Before you start feeling left out, I think God uses every person to do something. I mean, sometimes you know what that is, and Maybe sometimes you don't know it for many, many years. But I was reminded about a story I had read from a few years ago about a woman in California who had taken her kids and some other kids on a field trip. She's driving the minivan. And they hear sirens and they see lights behind them. So she pulls off to the side of the road and a fire truck passes them and there's a Dalmatian sitting in the passenger's seat, which causes the kids in the van to start having a discussion on what is the Dalmatian there for. So one kid suggests, well, he's there as a companion, just to be a friend. Someone else suggests that the Dalmatian is there to rush in and save people, if needed, out of the fire. Or someone else says, no, he's there to keep the crowds back when they're trying to get to the fire. And then one boy pipes up from the back and he says, no, he's there to help find the fire hydrant. Okay, now listen, every Part of the creation has a purpose, right? Are you with me? Every part has a purpose. And you might know what it is, or you might not know what it is for years, but God has a purpose for every single life, and he chooses to use people to do these things. It's amazing. I mean, one of the things that we definitely learned from the birth of Jesus is that God uses people to accomplish his will. And so through these two frightened, poor, uneducated, average teen parents, God is going to entrust his son. It's amazing, isn't it? So Mary's pregnant and Joseph has questions like what's going on and how's this going to happen? And then we read this in verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you're taking notes tonight, maybe just write down this second thing, is this, that God always has a plan. God always has a plan. 
Joseph, here's the deal. Don't be afraid because what Mary's telling you is legitimate. Everything is, is true. And I know you have questions and I know you might be confused, but here's the plan. And this is God's plan, that this child is going to save people from their sins. That's what his name means. He's the gift of salvation, so name him Jesus. That's God's plan. And it was his plan from the very beginning because God is trying to bridge the gap between people and himself, and he's been working this plan since the beginning of time because God always has a plan. You go back to the opening pages of the scriptures, right? And there's Adam and there's Eve, and they choose to go their own direction instead of God's direction. And sin enters the world, and they're kicked out of the garden, but God comes in, and he says, that's okay, I have a plan. I got a plan, right? Abraham, I know that you think you're too old to do what I just asked you to do, but I got a plan, right? The Israelites, they're stuck in slavery in Egypt. Here's God, I got a plan. They're trying to escape and there's this giant wall of water here and the, uh, Pharaoh and his army behind them. But here's God, I've got a plan. I got a plan, right? David's standing before Goliath, God's got a plan. You have a divided kingdom, God's got a plan. 400 years of silence, but God's got a plan. Because God's always working. And sometimes he's here on stage and you see him and he's very visible, but other times he's backstage working with props, but he's always working, always working. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I mean, I don't know what you walk in here with tonight and I don't know how it's gonna turn out for you. I, I know this, that God has a plan. He's got a plan. And it's probably different from what you might expect it might be different from what you're thinking about, but if things are uncertain for you, if you're unsure about how it's gonna turn out, if you don't know how things are gonna work out or how it's all gonna end or anything like that, I, all I have is this, is that God has a plan. I believe he has a plan. And there's probably a teenager in the room tonight or a parent in the room that just needs to hear that. Or a college student or a young adult or if you ever just kind of struggled with whether or not you think God cares, God's got a plan. And he's working that plan. And he's working a plan for your good. And so if you've ever questioned that before in your life, and I've questioned God's plan at times, maybe you can trust just enough what he did with the birth of his son. Listen to the way Paul writes this years later in the book of Galatians. He says, but when the right time came, that's a great phrase, isn't it? At just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Isn't that great? At just the right time, huh? That Jesus was born and he grew like us and he lived like us and yet he sacrificed his life for us. Dies, excuse me, dies for us, offers grace offers this relationship with God, and that's God's plan. I think it's probably something that helps Joseph trust what it is that comes next in the plan. Here's the way it reads in verse 22. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. In other words, people have been saying for a long time, here's what's gonna happen, and now it's happening. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. 
Joseph decides to trust God's plan. They get married, the birth of Jesus, all the details that surround that happened exactly as it had been predicted. And so if you're taking notes, here's kind of a third thing I think would be important to, to write down is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. See, God's been making promises about Jesus from the opening pages of the story. As we just mentioned, right, we have Adam and we have Eve and they choose to go their own direction and sin entered the world and it filtered its way down throughout history until it's found its way into our lives as well. And God's come on the scene and he's banished them from the garden and yet he says, all right, I have a plan and here's how it's gonna work. Here's the promise I'm making, that someday someone from your own family, Adam, is going to come on the scene and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan. He is essentially going to defeat our greatest enemy because their sin actually led to death, physical as well as spiritual. This is the first prophecy that says, pay attention, someday something great is going to happen. I mean, there's over 300, closer to like 350 different prophecies that concern Jesus, all of which are saying the same thing. Something's gonna happen, pay attention. Something's gonna happen, pay attention. And so the question has come up periodically. I mean, what are the chances that someone could actually fulfill that many prophecies in their lifetime? Well, some researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology actually came about it from a scientific probability standpoint, and they just took eight of these prophecies, and they started with the birthplace. What's the likelihood that someone would actually be born in Bethlehem? So they picked eight of these 300-plus prophecies, and they say the chance that a man might have lived to fulfill eight of these is one in 100 trillion. Because I don't really understand math that well, you don't want me to add things or do anything like that, I like to better illustrate it this way. I, I like this one. Is that if you were to take 100 trillion silver dollars and spread them out over the face of the entire state of Texas, all right, can you kind of get that mental picture there? 100 trillion silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas, they would be two feet deep. And let's say you put a special mark on one of those silver dollars, and then we blindfolded someone here in our crowd tonight, and we let you walk around the state of Texas and gave you one opportunity to pick out that marked coin. Those are the chances that you would do it. They are one in 100 trillion. And that's just to say that someone could accidentally fulfill eight of the prophecies, not even 300. See, it's no accident that Jesus fulfills all 300 plus prophecies, because that's what God does. I mean, God keeps his promises. So just consider some of these that I pulled out of the Old Testament. Here's what the prophet Micah says about where Jesus would be born. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. He's saying, look, the birthplace will be Bethlehem, a, a town that's never averaged more than 1,000 people ever. And Micah says this 400 years before the birth of Jesus. I mean, that would be like some pilgrims sitting around a table and saying, you know, we think some planes are gonna fly into the World Trade Center. It's, it's just crazy to think that this happened. Isaiah, who we just read a couple of minutes ago, says this in chapter 7 of Isaiah, the virgin will conceive a child. 
She'll give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah predicted this 700 years before it ever happened. How about in regards to Jesus' death? We have lots of prophecies that he fulfilled. Here's another one from Isaiah. It says, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so he could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And what's remarkable about these different prophecies that concern crucifixion is that they're happening long before crucifixion had ever even been invented or had been thought about being used by the Romans. Here's another one from Psalm 22. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They've pierced my hands and feet, a reference to crucifixion. I can count all my bones, which came true as well. No bones of Jesus were broken. My enemies stare at me and they gloat. They divide my garments among themselves. They throw dice for my clothing. That's written by David a thousand years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. And so if you're someone tonight who is looking for some kind of proof, if you're looking for some kind of evidence about Jesus, or maybe you're just someone who comes in and you're in need of some reassurance, God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. Because this is what we have, right? This is Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior. He is the thread that runs throughout the entire story from the beginning until the end comes onto the scene, right? Divides time, creates the greatest moment in history, shows us the way to love, shows us the way to the Father, shows us the best possible way to live, becomes that sacrifice for our sins. He's buried, he's raised to life again. The scriptures say he's now seated next to his Father in heaven and he's waiting for the final word in which God will look to him and say, it's time to go back in there. See, you could essentially divide the Bible up into three major themes. And what we've looked at so far is Jesus is coming. And what we've talked about today is Jesus is here. But the rest of the story is that Jesus is coming back again. And God's promised that all of those who trust in him will have a life with him. Not just forever someday, but that's now here. And so maybe you've been convinced of that before. You could just simply celebrate that tonight. Others of you, I just want to encourage you to keep searching, keep reading, keep asking questions, keep talking, come down after service, and let's talk about what the next step might be for you in your relationship with Christ. And I'll just give you one very, very simple question as we wrap the whole thing up. I mean, do you trust, right? Do you trust that Jesus is the Messiah, God's Son, the Savior of the world? More importantly, do you trust him as your savior? Do you trust him as your savior? Let me pray for us tonight. God, we just simply say a big thank you tonight for stories that are familiar to us and maybe even seem out of place at this time of year, but God, we thank you for their record. God, we acknowledge that you engineered and orchestrated a rescue mission for us, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. God, we're reminded of his words that you love the world so much that you gave your only son that if any of us were to believe in you, we could have eternal life. And we thank you for that. And we pray all these things through Jesus. Amen.